day of wrath, a day that is yet to come upon the earth. In terms of duration, the day of the Lord will not be a 24-hour day. In fact, the day of the Lord is really synonymous with the tribulation period. Those two things are one and the same. And we know that the tribulation will be seven years long. According to Daniel 9 and the book of Revelation, the whole seven-year period of the tribulation will be a time of wrath upon the earth. Jesus himself spoke of it as being a, a horrendous time of devastation upon the inhabitants of the earth. He said this in Matthew 24, 21, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and will never be. And because both the rapture, which is what we've been looking at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the day of the Lord here in 1 Thessalonians 5, both of them are imminent events. Because of that, because they could happen at any moment, we conclude that these two events must be connected. As we saw last week, the rapture really initiates the day of the Lord. Uh, They're sort of a package deal, these two things. At any moment, Christ could return to rapture the church, gathering us into the air and then bringing us back to heaven with him. That could happen at any moment. And then once the church is removed, Christ begins to break the seal judgments described in Revelation 6, unleashing death war, famine, and terror upon the earth. And as you are probably aware, there's really a significant amount of debate around the topic of the rapture and the tribulation period. Some, some Christians believe that we, as the church, must go through the tribulation period, that we must endure it, that we will be a, uh, receiving that wrath along with the rest of the world. That's sort of the post-tribulational view of the rapture that often accompanies covenant theology. And as you know, I don't find that presentation to be very convincing. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon on John 14, verses 1 through 3, in which I believe Jesus' words give clear support to the opposite view. That is the view that the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation period, prior to the day of the Lord. And in fact... The very passage that we come to today, I find to be at odds with the view of a post-tribulational rapture, particularly verse 9 of chapter 5. Paul tells the Thessalonians, God has not destined them for wrath. In context, the wrath clearly refers to the wrath of the day of the Lord. This means that God has not appointed us to suffer through the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth alongside the unrighteous who have lived their lives rejecting God. Really, the day of the Lord is a day of reckoning for the unrighteous. But but this morning, I really don't want this theological issue about the timing of the rapture to distract us from Paul's main goal in this particular passage. In verses 1 and 2, Paul introduced the topic of the day of the Lord judgment by reminding the church of what they already knew. That was that the day of the Lord would come suddenly. We saw this last week. The day of the Lord would come unexpectedly upon them, like a a thief in the night. Therefore, the future timing of the rapture and the day of the Lord is really unknown. We don't know when it will happen. It will happen like a thief in the night. But according to verse 3, 
when Christ returns and when this day of the Lord begins, the world will be utterly taken by surprise. Not the church, the world. And, and nor will every faithful Christian should be aware and looking for Christ returning, Christ coming. Every faithful church should be longing for Christ's return. And then beginning in verse 4, which is where we'll begin this morning, after describing the unaware and unprepared position of the world, in these verses that we come to, Paul now turns his attention to the church, speaking to believers. And he really needed to remind them of how they ought to live in light of this coming day of judgment. This coming day of wrath was, yes, looming imminently in the future, but Paul wanted to make certain that, church, that the church was now living in a way that would be pleasing to God. And really, we're in the exact same position today as that ancient church was back then. We are in the exact same position. We don't know the date or the timing of the rapture or the outbreaking of the day of the Lord, but we need to understand that it certainly will come, and we need to make sure we're living in a way now that is consistent with this future reality. Paul is, Paul's concern here is that is how we ought to live in light of the earth's coming judgment. It's really life in light of the day of the Lord. Life here and now in light of the day of the Lord. Beginning in verse 4, Paul contrasts those, uh, contrasts those in the church with the unbelieving world. Paul, Paul wanted the church really to have clarity regarding who they were as Christians. Therefore, since this is an inspired letter here, we're reading and studying the Word of God, we could say this morning that the Holy Spirit wants us to know who we are as Christians. He wants us to know who we are. So this morning, first, I want you to see our identity. Our identity in verses 4 and 5. That is who we are as Christians. Look at your Bible with me, beginning in verse 4. Paul writes, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night, nor of darkness. So, so Paul here is making an abrupt, abrupt shift. He's no longer discussing the world. And he says emphatically, But you, brethren, we as the church really should not be surprised at all by the day of the Lord. We, we know that it is coming. We will not be startled by it as one would be startled by perhaps suddenly encountering a thief in your garage, being caught off guard by a thief. That won't happen to us. No, we are expecting it. We know with certainty that it is coming. We know that Christ will return for the church and then God's wrath will be poured out upon the earth. We know these things. And it seems to me that we ought to have sort of mixed emotions regarding this knowledge of the future. On the one hand, we're eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior. We, we pray for and long for His coming, but we also know that when Christ comes, it means judgment upon the world. And so, out of love for the world, I think this should make our heart break for our unbelieving friends. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. 
The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So as we wait here, and as Christ tarries and does not come, it means it's opportunity for our friends and those who do not know Christ in our lives, it's opportunity for them to come to know him and for us to preach the gospel to them. The Lord's patience is, can lead to their salvation. But as we wait for Christ's return and this culminating day of judgment upon the earth, Paul wants us to be aware of who we are. He wanted the Christians in Thessalonica to be fully assured of their identity. Look again at verses 4 and 5. He says, You are not in darkness. You are all sons of light. You are sons of day. And you are not of night and not of darkness. So so repeatedly here, Paul stresses who they are, stresses their identity. You are in the light. You're not in the darkness. You are of the day. You're, you're, not of, you're not of the night. Obviously, Paul here is using metaphors, but we say, well, what does it mean to be in darkness? What does it mean to be of the night? Well, really, it refers to those who will be utterly caught off guard by the returning of Christ when Christ comes in judgment like a thief. It, re- it refers to those who will be suddenly overtaken in verse, th- verse 3. But, but also to be in darkness refers to be in the moral darkness of this world. It really refers to those who are still dead in their transgressions and sins. It refers to people who do not know Christ, who have not been born again, who have never turned to Christ in faith and repentance. These are the sons of darkness. They are not the sons of light. But Paul here assures the church For you are all sons of light and sons of day. You, all of you, he's saying. Because of their identity and and the day of the Lord would not suddenly seize them because they were sons of light. So most succinctly, we could say that those who are sons of light and sons of day are just simply Christians. And throughout the New Testament, being in the light or of the light is really a common metaphor or description for a Christian. For example, the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a, holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you can proclaim the excellency, excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The Apostle John highlighted the difference between Christians and the unbelieving world with these words in 1 John 2, 8. He says, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he's in the light, yet hates his brother, is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So to be in the light, to walk in the light, is to be a Christian. And Jesus himself spoke this way. Recall his words in John 8, 12, when he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So in our passage here in 1 Thessalonians 5, the, the Apostle Paul was assuring the church in Thessalonica that they were Christians, that they were in Christ. He's assuring them that they're true, born-again believers, and he's really speaking very definitively about their salvation or their position in Christ. He's extremely confident here about their identity as being in Christ, which really made me wonder, how could Paul have such certainty about this group of Christians in Thessalonica? How was he so sure that they were Christians, that they were true Christians, born-again believers? What made Paul so certain And I thought of two reasons, two reasons for Paul's certainty about their salvation. The first reason is just by the mere fact of the severity of their conversion, the nature in which they came to Christ. Back up in the book with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and look at verse 2 where Paul describes their conversion. Look with me at verse 2, beginning in verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us of what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. In essence, Paul is just reminding them of their dramatic turn to Christ. Even in the midst of hardship and tribulation, with much joy, they embraced the gospel and their lives were transformed. So that's the first reason I think Paul was so certain about their conversion and their identity as being in Christ. The second reason I think he was so certain was what I'm calling individual pastoral care. Paul cared and the other missionaries cared for each one of them. Look in the second chapter, 2 Thessalonians At verse 7, jumping in at verse 7, Paul writes, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we, re- we proclaimed the gospel, to, the gospel to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved. Catch the, look at here now. We behaved toward you, believers, just as you know how we were in exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Each one of them. 
individual attention, working with them, hearing from them. What are you believing? What are you thinking? What's going on in your heart? What are you wrestling with? This is individual pastoral care. So Paul had great confidence in these Thessalonian status as being sons and daughters of light because of the, the fruit of repentance in their lives and because Paul, Silas, and Timothy had given significant pastoral care to each one of them. Which makes me really ask, is Paul's confidence in this church's salvation, is that normative? Is that normative for us? Or is Paul just like an apostle? He's different. He's in a different category than us. And therefore, he's got magical abilities to know for certain that these people are in Christ. Is it, is it normative for us today? Meaning, should pastor elders today have confidence about the spiritual state or identity of Christians in their church? Should they have that sort of certainty or a level of certainty? I mean, Paul was confident about their salvation. As elders, should we have a similar level of confidence about our church, about you? And I would say, I think we should. I think... I just I don't think that this confidence stemmed from Paul's status as an apostle. Meaning I think as elder pastors, we should be able to recognize who the Christians are that really make up the church. Jesus himself said, each tree is known by its fruit. You, you will recognize a Christian by the fruit of their lives. He said that in Luke 6:44. And the Apostle John was confident that all Christians should be able to recognize who a Christian is and who is not. In 1 John 3.10 he wrote, By this the children of God and the children of the devil, those are the two categories, the only two categories, children of God, children of the devil. He said, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. In other words, according to 1 John 3.10, it's not a mystery as to who a Christian is. A Christian will love to obey God. They'll love to submit their lives in obedience to God, and they also will love fellowship. They'll love the brethren. So I think that it's normative for the elder pastors of a local church to know with a level of certainty who the church is, who the Christians are that make up the church. It's not just everyone, of course, who walks through the door that we just assume is a Christian. Of course not. Uh, we should be able to know who the true Christians are. We would have to say we can, of course, get that assessment wrong. We can make the wrong judgment. We can think someone's a Christian when in reality they're not. 1 John 2.19 reminds this of this possibility. It says there, they went out from us, for they were not really of us, because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be shown that they're not of us. So occasionally we're wrongly going to judge someone to be a Christian when in reality they are not. Or we may baptize someone that we think is a Christian only to come to find out years later when they reject Christ and walk away that they were indeed a false convert. They were not truly in Christ. But I say all of this to make the comparison that Paul said with what Paul said here to the church in Thessalonica. He said, you are all sons of light and sons of day, very confidently speaking about this church's salvation. So in our church, 
for me to say something similar and to speak to you all with a similar level of confidence, uh, I would have to limit that to those who have submitted to our church through church membership. I would say for those of you who are members, I'd say we have an optimistic confidence about your salvation because we've heard your testimony. We've heard your understanding of the gospel. We've been able to watch your life and observe the fruit of repentance in your life. We've seen your desire to grow in Christ. And so this gives us confidence that you are, in fact, a Christian. So as Paul assured this church in Thessalonica about their identity, saying, you are all sons of light and sons of day, For those of you who are members, I think we could speak in a similar way to you. You are in Christ. You you are sons of day, sons of light. Recognize who you are in Christ. Of course, we could say for those of you who are not yet members, have not officially joined, we ultimately maybe don't know where you're at with Christ just because you haven't opened up your life to us yet. So we, we are confident that you may be a Christian, but we can't speak with a similar level of certainty as we would to those who have gone through the membership process and who have really opened up their heart to us. So without having heard your testimony and giving, and giving you the opportunity to just open up your life to us, we couldn't speak with that level of certainty. But after extensive time with the Thessalonians, Paul can emphatically declare to them, you are all sons of light, sons of day. In other words, recognize who you are in Christ. And that's what we really need to do here. We need to recognize that we are sons of light and sons of day. That is our position. That's who we are. We are in Christ. As brothers and sisters in this church, we are sons of light. And this, of course, leads to our next point, our individual responsibility. So we've seen our identity. Well, this then leads to our individual responsibility as a Christian. As being a son of the light, now we have responsibilities that he begins in verse 6. Look there. Paul writes, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So even though Christians are of the day, we can still slip into sleep mode in our Christian lives. We can sort of drift off to sleep, forsaking our calling as Christians. In other words, you can be asleep at the wheel in your Christian life. And sadly, I think many Christians are asleep in their spiritual lives. They may truly be born again. They may truly know Christ. But for one reason or another, they sort of have hit the snooze button on their responsibilities as a Christian. And therefore, they're not engaged in the Great Commission. They've lost any compulsion or desire to be about evangelism and discipleship. They have little desire to read their Bibles. The fellowship in their life is is at a minimum. Uh, Church involvement is, is a low priority. And really, there's no marked difference between their lives and the lives of the unbelieving world. They are Christians who are spiritually asleep. And so, beloved, don't let that be the case with you. Don't be asleep. Paul recognized that this was a threat for all of us. That's why he includes himself here. He says, let us not sleep like the rest of mankind. Instead, he says, 
Let us be alert and sober. Really, to be alert is the opposite of being asleep. It's the opposite of being spiritually indifferent. To, to be alert is to have an active and faithful walk as a Christian. It's to be watchful and expectant for the return of the Lord. It, it definitely means that, but it, it means more than that. It means to be a healthy, thriving Christian. As Paul would write it in 1 Corinthians, it's, it's to run the Christian race in such a way that you may win. It's running hard after Christ. Really, to be alert is just a broad maxim for our duty as Christians. It describes the attitude and temper that we ought to have, that ought to characterize our life. It's a demand for moral and spiritual wakeful activity. It's to be pressing on constantly in your walk with the Lord. Really, we could say it's doing all the things that Christians ought to do. Fighting sin, pursuing the Lord, uh, practicing the one another's, being vigilant in all areas of your Christian life. It's to be alert. But Paul also adds, let us be sober. Uh, these two terms often go together, be alert and sober. Uh, sober literally means not to be intoxicated. Don't, don't be drunk, in other words. However, every time this word is used, and it's used six times in the New Testament, it always refers to being self-controlled, being well-balanced. It's really a prohibition against drunken behavior. It's really a call to be sober-minded, rational, thoughtful. It's to resist the urge to overreact in our Christian lives. And it's interesting that this word often occurs in eschatological context, that is, future-oriented passages. When referencing the future, the writers of the New Testament often command sobriety or sober-mindedness. For example, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. This is what's happening. This is how the, what will come, Paul writes. But in, then he looks to the church and says, But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. In 1 Peter verse four, or chapter 4, verse 7, it says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Be sober so that you can pray. And then in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, it says these similar words. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So in light of some of these future coming realities, be sober, be alert. Apparently, there's something about thinking about the future that causes Christians to veer to the extreme. When we're talking and thinking about God's plan for the future, it seems that we should be quick to remind ourselves uh, for the need to be sober-minded. 
when we're talking and thinking about God's plan for the future, we just need to remind ourselves, we need to be sober. We need to avoid becoming sinfully intoxicated in fears or speculations about this coming day of wrath or the end of the world. Our minds can easily be wrapped up in fears about what is coming and overcorrect by withdrawing from our Christian duties. We can overcorrect and withdraw from the things we should be engaged in. Apparently, this was a concern on Paul's heart for the Thessalonians. As a church, we know that they were very concerned about the rapture, and they were concerned about the coming day of the Lord. And it seems that this was causing some of them to neglect their spiritual duties to other Christians in the church. And it was also causing some of them to draw back from from work, from, from making a wage. There were some in the church who were just kind of slipping into a mode of slothful laziness as they thought they were waiting out the end. So as individuals, being fully aware that the day of the Lord will come, we must be alert and sober. And then in verse 7, Paul points out a really a well-known fact to really in, reinforce this exhortation that he just gave in verse 6. He says, For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. In general, in the culture of Paul's day, and likely even our culture today, when people sleep at night, and it's, of course, not always true, uh, and those who get drunk also get drunk generally. This is a true, this is a well-known fact. So sleep and drunkenness are really the opposite of being alert and sober-minded. And sleepfulness and drunkenness are characteristics of the sons of night, of those who live in darkness. But Paul is saying, but you are in the Lord. You are of the day. You are of a light. Therefore, be alert. Because of who you are in Christ, be alert, be sober-minded. Of course, here Paul's not being critical of sleep or anything like that. We all need sleep. But again, he's using a metaphor to call us to alertness, to, to sober-minded behavior, which he again emphasizes in verse 8. Look at it with me. He says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Since we are of the day, since our identity is in Christ, let us be sober. And really, Paul here doubles down, again mentioning soberness, again, or sobriety. He doubles down on our need for sobriety. And again, he's not referring to uh, refraining from being drunk, which of course is something a Christian should do. He's calling Christians to fight the urge to be swept up in maybe what we'd call it fanaticism. To be sober-minded, to be level-headed, to stay alert, in essence, to keep your powder dry, to keep your hand to the plow doing what God has called us to do. It's to remain sober-minded in light of the future. For the sake of clarity, then, Paul here provides another metaphor to really explain for everyone to see what is he exactly talking about when he says be sober. Well, he explains it by adding a new metaphor here. He says, he refers to putting on the armor, and particularly the breastplate, which, of course, is a, a protective covering for the chest, protecting the vital organs, and then the helmet, which is another piece of protective armor to protect from attack. And he writes again, Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Really, the key word or phrase to rightly understand this passage here in verse 8 is having put on 
And there's really two different ways that you could translate and understand this phrase. Uh, the first option suggests that this putting on is something that we've done in the past. Uh, in essence, the meaning is, let us be sober because we've put on the breastplate and the helmet. This is the meaning that's really suggested by the version of the Bible I'm using here today, the NASB, or similar to the ESV. The other option suggests that this putting on is an ongoing activity that we keep doing. Thus, we behave in a sober manner by putting on the breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Really, one can make a grammatical argument for either position, but I think the second option fits the context significantly better here. I like the way the Net Bible renders this verse. It says, But since we are of, we are of the day, we must stay sober by putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of our salvation. This means, in essence, the means by which we remain sober-minded is by putting on this breastplate and the helmet. That's how we do it. That's how we remain sober is by putting this breastplate and helmet on. And really the breastplate consists of two qualities. It's faith and love themselves that make up the breastplate. The faith and love are the breastplate. And they function as a piece of protective armor in our Christian lives. The faith here refers to faith in God or faith in Christ, believing the right things. And then the love refers to our relationship towards other Christians. Uh, love towards others, to our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. That is the, the love here. So faith in God and love towards others is characteristic of sober-mindedness. A sober-minded Christian guards himself by believing the truth and loving others. Do you understand that? That is the protective piece of armor. We believe the right things and we love others. Faith in God and love towards other people protects us from evil influences, from the temptations of the world and the schemes of the evil one. So we put on the breastplate by loving others and believing the truth. And along with this breastplate, we also put on the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. And of course, the helmet is really the crown of the soldier's armor. Obviously, the head invites special attacks from the enemy. But what guards the head and gives it its protective, protective protection is the hope of salvation, our hope for salvation. It's hope in what is coming, hope for the salvation that is ahead. And it's, it's not here, salvation is not here in the past tense, speaking of a, of a justification of when we came to faith. And it's not salvation in a present tense, speaking of our, of our growing in Christ, our sanctification. But it's, it's really hope in a future tense, looking forward to the day when our salvation is fully complete in Christ, when our bodies are glorified and we're no longer able to sin whatsoever and we're able to enjoy Christ's presence forevermore. So when our hearts begin to be stirred up by the stormy waters of today's world, this hope in the future should bring a calming influence over us. That is what calms the waters in our lives. It's sort of like we can say, come what may, we know where we're going. We know who we believed in. We know what's coming. 
And so we hope for that future salvation. And so in one sense, you can really check how well you're doing in terms of sober-mindedness by assessing your own faith in God and his word and assessing your own love for others and then finally assessing your hope in the future. In essence, that's really our own personal sobriety test. Are you believing the right things? Are you loving and serving other people? And are you hoping in the future in what God has revealed? So to, so to live as a sober-minded Christian means to have the right kind of faith, believing the right things, loving others, and then a hope in the future. That's how we put on the breastplate in the helmet. But it's really the hope for the future that takes center stage here. I say that because Paul then gives the next two verses to developing this idea of the hope. And so I'm calling this third point our destiny. That is what we're hoping in and what we're looking forward to, what our destiny is. And in these verses, Paul develops the hope of the believer. Look with me at verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So our, our hope here is based on the fact that God has not destined us for wrath, but really gaining salvation through Jesus Christ. So beloved, understand what we have been appointed to. We have been destined for salvation. We've been appointed for salvation. As Ephesians chapter 1 says, before the foundation of the world, God predestined us to adoption as sons. He chose us in Christ long before we ever chose him. He chose us in Christ before he created the world in six days. And this is the concept that Paul is reminding this congregation of, as he did earlier in the book. Again, in chapter, chapter 1, verse 4, he reminded them of God's choice of them, literally God's election of them. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, it is God who had called them into his own kingdom and glory. And, and he again refers to God's call on their life as the reason for their holiness in chapter 4, verse 7. He, he repeatedly reminds them of this. This is what God has called you for. This is what he has predestined you for. This is what he's, in essence, elected you for. And it's not for wrath here. It's for salvation. Of course, wrath here, again, is referencing the wrath of the day of the Lord, of the tribulation period. The church has not been appointed for the wrath that is to come. The church of Jesus Christ will be spared the coming wrath by being removed by the rapture, removed from the earth by the rapture. Again, that's the end of chapter 4. And this is all part of just that future package of salvation that we are waiting for and hoping for. The future salvation that we obtain through Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is the agent of our salvation. It's he died. He saves us, not we ourselves. We don't work our way into heaven. He saves us through his death. So Jesus Christ is the fountainhead. He's the source of our salvation. And in him, our hope for salvation 
will assuredly be realized. Look at verse 10. It says, Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or are asleep, we will live together with him. Here, Paul returns to his earlier use of this metaphor back in chapter 4. To be awake means to be alive when Christ returns. It means to be living when Christ comes back. Then to be asleep means, means to have died before Christ comes. It means to be a Christian who's died before the return of the Lord. So either way, if Christ come back, comes back tomorrow, if, or if he comes back 500 years from now, our confidence is this. We will live together with him. We will live with him. We will live in resurrected, glorified bodies forever with him. That is the result of our future salvation. And this is our destiny. So because of our identity in Christ, we have individual responsibilities to believe the right things, love others, to have a right hope. In other words, to be sober in this world. This points us to our destiny of what we will inherit, which is salvation. Then finally, Paul concludes with our congregational responsibility. Our congregational responsibility. What we, what we have is a responsibility as a church. Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So in light of all that's come before in this passage, we as members of the local church have a responsibility for one another. We have a responsibility to one another. Because the day of the Lord is coming and because we are sons and daughters of the light and of the day, we are called to alertness, to sobriety. We're called to put on faith, love, and hope. But we do not do this alone. We must encourage one another. We must spiritually build into one another. And, and of course, we, we do this together. We do it right here at our Lord's Day gathering on Sunday morning. We do it in our Sunday school classes. We do it in our various Bible studies throughout the week. We do it in coffee shops and, and over lunch throughout the week. We do it in one another's homes, having people over and encouraging one another with these truths, with the truths of God's word. In other words, we are building up one another, a construction term. We're building into people's lives. This is all of our responsibilities. In, in other words, we make spiritual investments into the lives of others. Meaning we speak the truth to one another in love. We pray for one another. We talk about the Bible together. We, we spur one another on to love and good deeds. This is what a church does. And really, this is not optional for any of us. This is, this is just what it means for us to complete the Great Commission, to be obedient to Christ. Each one of us must be engaging others in the church with the truth of God's word. We must be concerned about the spiritual well-being of others. We encourage them. We speak the truth to them. We build into their lives. And again, this is just the simple reality of the Great Commission. Jesus said, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that Christ has commanded. That's exactly what this is. It's encouraging one another. It's building into one another. So church, we must invest in one another. You must be in, interested and invested into this ministry of speaking the truth of God's word into other people, encouraging them spiritually. You must seek out opportunities to obey this, to do this. And so this is our corporate congregational responsibility. 
And this young church in Thessalonica was already doing this. That's why Paul writes, just as you are already doing it. Sure, they were immature in ways, but they were active in encouraging and building one another up. Yes, they, they needed to be pushed on and spurred on to greater involvement. And I think this, the same is true of us. It is each one of our spiritual responsibility to minister God's word to those in our lives, to those in our church, to encourage people. And so we, we do this through all sorts of settings and various ways. We, we get together and read books together. We talk about the Bible. We study the Bible together. We ask thoughtful questions of one another to encourage others. But somehow, some way, we're working to encourage others in the church. I, I'm blessed that I see so many of you doing this. And I'm so encouraged when I hear things like so-and-so got together for lunch and they just talked about the word of God together and they met up because they just wanted to encourage one another. I love that. But we should be thinking about how we can be in one another's lives so that we can encourage one another and then build up one another. This is just all of our responsibility. This is what makes a healthy church strong is when the Christians are active in this one another ministry of encouragement in the church. And uh, this reminds us, so as we wait for the coming day of the Lord and what is coming, thinking about this future day of the rat, we, we keep our heads, we keep sober-minded, and we stay at work in the Great Commission. That's what we're to do. So let's pray towards that end this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this realization that you've revealed to us about the coming day of the Lord. Lord, we just pray that in light of the coming day of wrath, that we would live rightly, uh, that since it is day, that we would give ourselves to working hard and the, we would not be spiritually asleep. Make us spiritually wakeful people. Make us be people who are aware of who's around us, who we can share Christ to, who we can minister to, uh, the, the hurting people around us that we can care and love for. Uh, keep us back from just being a cloistered off Christianity that thinks only about itself, but may we be active in thinking about ministering to others in the church and outside the church. May we be active in the Great Commission. May we encourage and build one another up in light of the coming day of wrath. We don't have forever. We just have one life to live. So may we run hard after Christ. May we run in such a way that we may win, just like Paul calls us to. So, Lord, we pray that you would be about this work in our midst, and we pray for any who do not know Christ here. We pray for any who have yet to surrender their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that you would draw them to yourself, that they would understand their great need for salvation, their great need to bring their life under Jesus Christ and his word, and that you would save them, that you would cause them to be born again. Lord, we just pray that you'd be drawing to people to yourself. So help us to be faithful, to share Christ, to disciple others, and really just watch you work in our midst. We love you and we praise, praise you and we pray all this for the greater end of seeing your glory in the earth. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.